Welcome to another edition of the Base Path Podcast brought to you by New England Baseball Journal. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan. Today we have a timely guest right after the MLB trade deadline, New York Mets Vice President of International and Amateur Scouting, Tom Tanus. Tom oversees both the Major League Amateur Draft and International Player Evaluations for a Mets organization that currently sits in first place in the NL East. Tom, thanks so much for joining us by Zoom. Hi, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, how are you feeling? I know, um, you know, I tried to schedule this for earlier this week, and you said you, you were busy with the trade deadline. How, how do you feel coming out of it? Tired, uh, quite frankly. Uh, you, you go through a entire scouting season preparing uh, for the draft, uh, and, and then immediately after that, you, you're into trade deadline talk. So there's another set of meetings that you have to go through. So the new calendar for Major League Baseball is a little bit different. It takes a little time for all of us to get used to uh, with with the draft being pushed to July now and the trade trade deadline immediately after it. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I've heard a lot of people say they're hoping it, it kind of gets moved back to June. How, how does it fit in your calendar the way it is now? Yeah, it, it's much more uh, bunched up. Our schedules now, it, it had a little separation when it was in June. So I think we had a little time to take a breath, prepare for the trade deadline uh, a, a little bit more uh, if you were in my situation. Um, I'm not sure ever will go back to it. That's that's not up to me. But uh, yeah, it, it certainly a little feels a little more rushed in your in, in your life, scouting life right now. Yeah. And how does the trade deadline, like how do you collaborate with your staff before? What are the days like? I, I've heard before, uh, you know, after the trade deadline, um, you know, general managers or, or uh, administrators for teams have said, you know, 90% of the discussions that you have leading into a, dra- a trade deadline don't end up coming to fruition, whether it's a trade or, you know, uh, making roster moves. How, what is that collaboration like for, for the New York Mets? You know, the trade deadline is, is run by the GM. The general manager is going to take control of those meetings and the preparation. And, and very similar to the draft, um, 90 to 95% of the players you discuss never come to fruition. Same as the draft. We talk about hundreds of players, uh, and you're only allowed to select 20, maybe 22 if you have some extra picks. Draft, draft deadline and trades are, are very similar. Um, you're going to discuss and be prepared for every scenario. Um, most of those scenarios will never work out um, for, for whatever reasons. There are 29 other teams involved uh, that want players also, whether it's a draft or the trade. Uh, so it's a lot of preparation uh, for a few players. Uh, and similar to the draft, the trade deadline discussions don't start five days before. Uh, those are discussions that are happening throughout the entire year. The pro pro department uh, really takes charge of minor league uh, reports, grading, uh, who's, who, who's a Rule 5 eligible for next year, uh, tendering contracts, things like that. So those discussions are on uh, going on the course of the entire year. But the last five days, you're kind of finalizing your board and what what the needs of your teams are. Now, in terms of the Mets, you know, I th- I would think you're kind of treated a little bit differently this year because, A, you're in first place, uh, and, B, uh, you had Jake DeGrom. He just came back last night from a long injury, the first time he's pitched in almost a year. 
Um, and so you could argue, I mean, no team has an addition like that, you know, made an addition like that at the trade deadline in terms of starting pitching. What was it like to see him back on the mound and how did his return uh, uh, influence your approach to the trade deadline? I'm not sure it influenced it all that much, but you're a- absolutely correct. Uh, it, it would be tough to acquire a piece that big uh, as Jake DeGrom. Uh, going into the trade deadline. So we were absolutely thrilled to see him back out there. Uh, He looked terrific, Um, you know, but we we tried to address some of the other needs uh, on the team during, during the deadline. And Darren Ruff was one of them and Michael Gibbons was another. So we feel really, really happy along with the addition of of Jake coming back and uh, hopefully Tyler McGill uh, coming back. So we have some pieces, even though we're in first place, we, we realize we need to keep pushing forward. Um, but we have some pieces in place uh, that I think make us for a really strong contender. And obviously we have you on here because you're a, a New England native. You're from Rhode Island. So, you know, I don't want to get too uh, in the weeds on the Mets. But um, it's funny. I was watching a video the other day. It was uh, Edwin Diaz's intro music as he walked out to the mound for a closing opportunity. And I was saying to somebody, like, if I could go to one game uh, of, of any team for the rest of the season, I think it would be a Mets game just because you guys have it rolling there and it seems like a really great atmosphere. Uh, you've been with the Mets for about a decade now. Um, what do you attribute the recent success to? You know, I think it's a combination of things. Player development has, has been fantastic. Uh, I think we've drafted quite well. Uh, and, uh, you know, with the addition of – some free agents uh, and Buck Walter and Billy Epler now uh, in, in fold. I think it's a combination of a lot of things. We've always had Sandy Alderson uh, for, for most of that decade overseeing the process of, of our departments. And, and Sandy, if you know anything about him, is, is very big on process, um, very, very big on building through a farm system as he's done in years past with Oakland and San Diego, and he came here and did the same thing. I think that combination with Billy and obviously our our owner, Steve Cohen, is so, who's so committed to winning, has been a tremendous combination. Yeah, with the owner, I, I was reading an article earlier this year where he said, you know, he's never satisfied. He always, he always wants to improve. He always wants to make uh, tweaks. How involved is he in your, in your day-to-day? How often do you have to report to him? Not, not, I wouldn't say day to day. I would say he's, he, he's very interested in all aspects, uh, whether it's player development, scouting, international. Uh, I've had numerous discussions. Billy Epler, the GM, and Sandy Alderson speak to him probably on a daily basis. So I, I would say involved um, and very curious about what, what we are thinking and what we're doing. And he's a huge process-oriented man uh, who, who comes from a world of success uh, so uh, I, I would say he's involved. Nice. Uh, I did want to ask, you've had some great uh, draft hits, you know, in your tenure. You, Like I said, you've been with the Mets since 2012 uh, at, in, in a scouting role. Uh, Justin Dunn, he was a BC guy, uh, kind of local to the Northeast uh, that you took in the first round. I think it was, you know, 2016, 17, somewhere in there. Um, uh, yes, and, he, he was 16. Okay. Yeah, and... How would you describe the scouting scene or, you know, the level of play and talent uh, in New England? What have you learned about that? And does it kind of come and go in waves and and shifts? Because last year, 2021, obviously, there were a ton of guys uh, from New England taken in the first five rounds or so. 
Yeah. So I, I, when I was an, I was an area scout for 10 years in New England. Um, and, uh, I, I have seen the talent, uh, probably get better, uh, from when I was starting out in the nineties, uh, up until now, uh, the, the kids are playing more, they're playing at a higher level. They're traveling the country to play, which was something we didn't see much of in the nineties. You'd have two or three kids, Rocco Bordelli would go to the area code games. Uh, You'd have a few, but not to the extent now. Now I'm seeing New England kids playing um, in Jupiter, Florida, uh, wherever I go, in Nashville. Um, So I think the world in New England has uh, gotten a little bit bigger in a sense of, hey, these kids are traveling. They're they're playing on serious teams. They're playing against serious competition. and so I, I would say the level of baseball in New England has has increased uh, tenfold in the last decade or so. And when you are on the road scouting, um, obviously, you know, the the analytics and the metrics are important. You know, you want to see guys that are, you know, throwing 90 plus and but you, what traits do you look for in players that maybe aren't so obvious? What are you looking uh, for in players besides the velocity or the exit velocity? Sure. Uh, you know, with both hitters and pitchers, you're looking for overall athleticism. Uh, athleticism usually will lead to improvement later. Um, is this player kind of maxed out? Is this about as good as he's going, going to be? Or is there another level of projection uh, you can put on that player? And that can go into how athletic he is within his delivery, how his hips move, uh, where he is on certain checkpoints in his delivery. Uh, also, um, you know, I, I think with young players, when they hit maturity, it is totally random. Uh, some, some kids keep growing in college. Some kids keep uh, are done as sophomores in high school. And it's a very hard thing to predict. And, and one, of, one of the main things for future success is, is this player on the rise? Is he going to get better as a sophomore, a junior in high school, a senior? Or is he capped off? And, and that's something I think you're going to have to make adjustments to. Yeah, that might be somewhere where uh, guys from the Northeast and New England have a little bit of an advantage because, like you said, you know, the weather is a factor. Maybe they're not getting as many reps or they're not playing as much um, going into high school. I was reading an article a couple of years ago where you said, you know, in your, I guess, in your scouting prime, uh, you were on the road like 200 days a year. Um, What's the schedule look like now in more of an executive position? Well, I'm still on the road that much. Uh, it's just uh, probably different spots. Uh, I'm in New York a little bit more in, in the office, but I'm still, I'll still be at the area code games, uh, still scouting college. And once January comes around, uh, I'm in the Dominican Public, Republic quite a bit more uh, and Colombia overseeing uh, international scouting. So my days are still still away from home. They're just in different spots right now. Yeah, I saw that uh, you you emphasize uh, being a great teammate is something that you're obviously looking for for guys. And then there are different criteria that you're kind of looking for by position. Um, what are some of those, uh, you know, attributes that you're looking for guys at specific positions? Well, every player needs to profile. Um, they, you need to be able to see that player in a role. Um, and within those roles are certain attributes that you need. So we're looking at a shortstop, uh, a shortstop with slow feet uh, who struggles to move around. It's difficult to envision him there. 
So you better be able to say, okay, we realize he's not a shortstop, but this bat will carry him to a certain level and is third base a possibility. The feet don't work quite quite as well in the middle of the field. Can we move him to third base? Is the arm strong enough to, to meet that criteria of third base? Is this a left fielder, essentially? Um, so every position will have a criteria um, and a checklist, and you kind of have to go down that checklist and, and make sure all those boxes, or most of them, not everyone has everything, uh, Make sure most of those boxes are, are checked so he can a- absolutely profile at the position you're saying he can profile at. Right. Uh, I wanted to ask about dealing with criticism because I was on the Internet this morning just kind of looking at what you guys did at the trade deadline. And there's always fans, uh, regardless of what you do, you know, you could have gone out and got Juan Soto yesterday and they would have said it wasn't enough. How do you deal with that criticism and uh, make sure that you're still trusting your own process? Yeah, you know, nobody's going to be happy. Hundred, it is a sport. It's fans. They have a right to be angry. Uh, they have a right to be happy. Uh, that you're never going to change that. If you are making decisions uh, based on trying to make fans happy or anyone happy, you're going to be sitting with the fans very quickly in this job. You need a process. You need conviction. Um, you need to be adaptable and realize, hey, we didn't do the right thing in this draft or this international signing. Where did we make our mistake? How, how do we get better? Um, nobody is looking at this more than the people who are working in the game. Doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, um, but uh, I, I think we have a good process in plan. And for the most part, we've done a very good job here in the draft and international signing. So, uh, you know, you, you kind of, I, I don't look at much criticism. I'm not, I, I mean, I have a Twitter account, of course, and Instagram, and I, I see it, but I don't take it to heart all that much. The Base Path Podcast will be back after these messages. Looking to keep up with all the latest news and information on New England baseball? New England Baseball Journal and BaseballJournal.com are the premier resources for information and inspiration on the New England baseball scene. Have every issue of New England Baseball Journal, the magazine, delivered to your home or office. And don't forget to stay in the game every day with a digital subscription to BaseballJournal.com to receive baseball coverage on clubs, college commits, prep and high school, Division One, Two, and Three colleges, showcases, rankings, and much more. Get in the game and behind the scenes now by going to BaseballJournal.com. Just click on the subscribe button and start the subscription that is right for you today. New England Baseball Journal is a Siemens Media publication. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful. Are you serious about playing your sport in college? Do you need a flexible education that allows you to maintain your practice and competition schedules while also preparing you to succeed at the next level? You should check out the University of Nebraska High School. UNHS is accredited and offers more than 100 online courses, including NCAA-approved courses to protect your academic eligibility. Students could earn a UNHS diploma or take a single course for transfer credit. Courses are college prep, self-paced, and available 24-7, 365. Enroll anytime and take up to a year to complete a course. Visit highschool.nebraska.edu today. 
This fall, Quincy College in Quincy, Massachusetts drops the puck on its first ever hockey season in the City of Presidents, just 10 minutes from Boston. The Granite, as they're known, will play in the CHF Collegiate Hockey Federation against Babson, Mass Maritime, Nichols, Sacred Heart, and D3 programs at UNH and Farmingdale State in New York. The Quincy College Granite will be well coached. Kyle Robertson has been coaching regional junior teams for 20 years, and over 100 of his players have gone on to NCAA programs. Kyle's assistant is Matt Gibbons, who's been coaching at North Quincy High for 12 years and won three titles there. Three years ago, he was the MIAA Coach of the Year. And as far as the educational part, Quincy College has a lot to offer. 37 different two-year degrees, and it's super affordable. There's even a new four-year business management degree that costs much less than other four-year schools. Want to make some history in a first-year hockey program? Now's your chance. Get more info at quincycollege.edu forward slash hockey. Now you, uh, you've obviously spent your almost your entire life in baseball. Uh, at what time? At what point in your life did you kind of set a goal to make this career, um, you know, a reality for you? And how did you start your track to such a high profile position? You know, when I got, I finished playing, I played at Community College of Rhode Island. We went to a College World Series, uh, so I was very proud of that. My freshman year, I transferred to American International College, a Division II school in Springfield that hadn't had a lot of success. Uh, they had a new coach, and he brought in a, a lot of talent, uh, a lot of junior college players. We were able to go to another College World Series, uh, the first time in that school's history, and the last. Uh, so I, I I was pretty you know, heavily involved in wanting to do something in baseball. My first goal was to play shortstop uh, for the Boston Red Sox. I was a Massachusetts kid uh, growing up. Uh, when, when that didn't take uh, take hold, I realized I wanted to go into either coaching. I didn't know much about scouting, so I started uh, coaching at the Community College of Rhode Island. Um, turned out to be a decent recruiter, had a few kids get drafted, um, you know, three or four each year and started meeting some scouts, um, realized that it was very tough to get a full-time job in college baseball. Uh, but I wanted to work full-time in baseball and I felt like, wow, scouting might be an avenue for, for me to, uh, pursue, um, with the help of JP Ricciardi, another new Englander. Uh, I had reached out to him. He was kind of, uh, uh, a big deal in the scouting community in New England. He was already just had gotten named uh, uh, assistant GM to the Oakland A's during their great run. I had reached out. He was kind enough uh, to go out of his way to make several phone calls for me. Uh, got me a phone call with uh, in an interview with the Milwaukee Brewers uh, back in 1996. Uh, I went for the interview. I got the job. It was a part-time job in charge of New England. Uh, for the whopping sum of $5,000. And that's kind of how it started. How did you make $5,000 stretch out for you? A lot of substitute teaching in the winter, uh, a little bit of bartending, uh, you know, and and a lot of clinics, uh, a lot of hitting lessons in in the off season. So uh, yeah, those were some, uh, those were some tough days financially for the first few years. Yeah, you must have been kind of living like a, a college uh, or, or like a minor league baseball player, I guess. Yeah, uh, credit card debt went up quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> had to work that off the next few years. Uh, spent spent a lot of time commuting, so I didn't have to stay in hotels. Uh, so, yeah, and I think a lot of people have that story. 
you talk to a lot of people in baseball, it's a very similar story. Uh, you do this out of passion uh, more than I, I, I don't know anyone who's ever gotten to the game that said, oh, I want to make a lot of money. That's my first goal. That's not the goal of anyone who gets into this game. It, it, it's it's a, a living that you make uh, out of passion and love for the game. And how do you really make your mark so that you can advance your career? Was it, uh, hey, you know, I was responsible for this signing or this, um, you know, this draft pick? Or how, how do you kind of advance within the within the baseball game? Yeah, in some cases, uh, drafting good players always helps. You, you know, it, it always helps your resume. There's, there's no doubt about it. But even now, when, when we're in line for promotions or promoting someone, there's more to it than that. It, it is um, how organized this person is. What's his feel for the game? What kind of evaluator is he? Is he a team player? Um, does he get what the organization is trying to do? Um you know, or is he on his own trying to do what he wants to do? Uh, so those, I, I feel like I came off with my superiors um, as a team player, as a quality evaluator, uh, and, and someone who was interested in the benefit of the team. And, and my work ethic was was quite good. Uh, but one thing I'll say about work ethic, everybody's work ethic is good, or you don't stay in this game very long. So. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Everybody's working, you know, a million hours and on the road all the time. Um, in 2013, you were the architect of the Metropolitan Baseball Classic. It was a tournament held at City Field featuring the top eight travel baseball teams in the country. Uh, more of that stuff is around now. Like there's a summer rivalry classic at, at Fenway. Um, like you said, area code games, East Coast Pro Showcase. Uh, at the time, the event was the largest amateur baseball tournament run by a major league baseball team. What was the inspiration for that? And how do you think it kind of shaped the way uh, showcase events are put on these days? I'm not sure we had anything, uh, you know, we had any influence of how they do it now. Uh, I, I wouldn't claim that tournament did that. I actually copied that um, tournament from the Mariner Cup which was done in the mid-90s um, by the Seattle Mariners, and a guy named Bob Fontaine, who was a legendary scouting director there. He had brought some travel teams up to his place uh, and, and started uh, playing a mini tournament there. And I love the idea. It didn't last. Uh, just like ours did not last quite as long as I would have liked it to because getting a stadium is very difficult to get nowadays uh, and using a field for a week uh, city field is, is difficult, but that's where it started. And I felt like I got with Brian Hayes, uh, uh, Ian Levin. Uh, and we said, Hey, I, I said, I'd like to run this tournament. What do we need to do? So we ended up getting the top, what we felt the top eight travel teams in the country to come to to City Field and play in this tournament. Uh, we also, I actually should say, we had seven teams and we put together our own team, uh, our own New York, New England team. And it was tremendous. We got to know the kids. We got to, had the kids on our field. Um, you know, we got to do certain testing with the players. That That is a little more difficult uh, when they're not on your field. So it was just tremendous. And, and it was a, a way of showing, hey, we're the New York Mets. We have interest in you. And I think the first year we did it, after the first year, there were 50 players that were drafted um, the following uh, year. 
Uh, so it was a tremendous success. We had a load of talent on there. Evo Shield came, Chet Lemon's Juice, uh, FTB had been there, Georgia Elite. We, we really had some of the best uh, travel teams in the country. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, and now you've got three sons who are playing at various levels of baseball, and you're you know you're looking for opportunities for those guys, you know, to get seen and you know play on big stages like that. Um, where are your three sons playing now, and what has it been like uh, to be you know in the game and watch them try to pursue their dreams? Oh, tremendous! Uh, they love the game. Uh, I, I love that they love it. I've never pushed them into it. Obviously, they. They've seen what I, I I do, so they had natural interest in it. Um, but I, I've always said this about to all my sons. Anytime you don't want to play, don't play. Uh, my father was a musician, uh, and he loved what he did. Uh, that, that was the one thing he instilled in us. Do what you want to do for a living, and you'll be happy. Um, so he wasn't a baseball guy, uh, but I fell in love with baseball, and I said, well, I, I want to try and make this, turn this into a living. Uh, so all three love the game. Uh, my oldest, Samuel, is at, at, at Rollins College. Uh, he'll be going into his sophomore year there. He's playing the Appalachian League, a uh, very good little second baseman. Uh, Gabriel's a sophomore rising junior um, at Barrington High School and has been playing in, he just just finished the Futures game. Um for PBR and, and is on a really good travel team, the, the Bay Sox, uh, a smaller team, but really strong on player development. So I'm really happy there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lucas played in the Little League World Series in 2018 uh, and, and had a lot of success in Little League and is going to be a freshman uh, and, and has developed into a very good ball player himself. Does it get competitive at all? Like, are they trying to, you know, match the other one's track and say, hey, you know, he was on a Little League All-Star team or he play, went off to play in colleges? Or do they or are they pretty supportive of each other? Uh, they are extremely supportive of each other, especially my oldest, Sam, will always be texting me, how did Gabe do? How did Luke do? Uh, what are they doing? Uh, also try to coach them a, lo- a little bit. Uh, that That's a probably uh, as parents, uh, my, my wife, Beth, we're most proud of how supportive they are of each other. Now that doesn't mean they're not, they don't go out and play basketball and somebody comes in a little roughed up and bleeding and they're three boys. They're very, very competitive, uh, which, which I like. Uh, but once they're split up from each other, they're very supportive. And now you hear a lot of people say the, the travel ball model is broken now. Um, for whatever reason is that has that been your experience or, or, or what do you think of the travel ball model in the summer where guys are you know traveling all over the place well there's a lot to it uh i i think it's it, that's a huge question um do i think travel ball is great from a scouting perspective yes because i now get to see a hundred players in one spot as opposed to when i first started i would go to legion games and be looking at one player at a time. Uh, so I can certainly consume more players and, and scouting staffs in general can consume more players um, in five days. That would take me months to, to be able to evaluate in the past. So I think that's a good thing about the showcase circuit, travel baseball. Um, what I don't love about it is it's becoming a little bit of, of a sport of the wealthy now. Um, you have to have money to be able to travel and stay in hotels and take airfare. 
um, and actually pay the three, four, five thousand dollars to play on a team, uh, a travel team. So I, I don't love that part of it. I think it can be a little exclusionary uh, of, of certain parts uh, of the country. So that's a concern uh, a little bit. Um, I would still love to see a regular baseball game where a pitcher goes out there and throws five or six innings uh, and competes rather than one inning and he's throwing for the gun. Uh, and it's less about baseball and more about uh, being recruited, which I understand. I want my kids recruited also. Uh, so we'll, we're going to play along to it. But, yeah, I think there's good and bad to it. Have you coached your kids uh, in baseball? I've tried. Uh, I really have. It's very difficult traveling this much. Sometimes in the fall, some years in the fall, I'll be able to get home and coach them on a Saturday and maybe run a practice. The coaches I have been, uh, I have experienced with all of them have been so generous. The, the one day out of a month, I can get down there. Uh, they've let me go on the field and, and help coach the, the entire team. So I absolutely love doing that. I come from a coaching background. Uh, so not as much as I'd, I'd like to say I, I've coached them, but uh, my oldest got a little bit more coaching than, than the other two as, as my career has moved on. Uh, my responsibilities away from home have, have taken shape a little bit more. So it's been tougher with the younger two. Yeah, do you find it difficult to uh, kind of not have that uh, that same eye that you use when you're, um, you know, evaluating players or scouting players when you're when you're uh, watching your own kids play? Watching your own kids much more difficult. I, I still see faults in them and and um, a lot of the good things they do, and, and and it registers through my scout brain. But then the problem is it immediately goes to my heart. Um, and those are, those are my kids. So I still get as nervous as anyone else when they have two strikes on them uh, in the batter's box or a ball hit to them in a big situation. Uh, you, you can't take that out uh, of the human being. Uh, I try and stay a little rational. It doesn't always it doesn't always happen. Uh, but, yeah, uh, I, you know, I like to think I can give them some advice uh, on how it looks. And it's usually better the next day. Uh, rather than that minute. Yeah, I used to get that advice in the car ride home from the game, and that wasn't always uh, welcome, but um, that's the way it goes sometimes. Um, what was your biggest surprise? Going back to the trade deadline, what was your biggest surprise? Was it uh, the Padres uh, acquiring Soto? Or, um, you know, it felt like they've got a lot of big-name big, big name players now. Um, anything that really kind of jumped out that you were surprised about? Um, I, I, I'd rather... You know, that wasn't too big a surprise. You knew he was going somewhere. Um, and all week, uh, you, you had heard that San Diego was involved with St. Louis, uh, was, was another competitor there. Um, you knew it was going to take a, a giant package to get him, and San Diego had that package. Um, and, and, and I, I won't speak on other teams. I, I, I wasn't all that surprised with that. I was more surprised with some of the players that ended up staying home. Um, and, and a deal not being done, but uh, like I said, that's really not my business. Uh, but you know, if I if I had a raised eyebrow, I guess uh, that that would be it. Yeah, the Red Sox had a few of those with uh, you know Bogarts and uh, JD Martinez, guys that I thought might get traded if they weren't if they're not going to resign them. But um, last question for you: How do you see this uh, Mets season playing out? What would uh, what what do you th- who do you think will be the the toughest competitors down the stretch here? 
Oh, I think there's a lot. I think there are just a lot of good teams speaking just on the uh, saying in the National League. Uh, so many teams. The Dodgers are obviously um, up there as as probably what what most people would consider the number one team. Uh, so I think of the Padres. It certainly uh, helped them. St. Louis is always a, a really strong team, and and, and uh, you know I. Everyone is is really good, and you look at Atlanta. Atlanta has played so well uh, this entire year. We've we've we, we've gone on streaks of winning seven games in a row, ten games in a row, and they're a difficult team to shake. They keep winning, um, so they're a well put together team. Also, uh, I, I think it's wide open as far as uh, you know who who can uh, eventually win this thing. Well, Tom, I really appreciate I know it's a it's a busy time of year for you and an exciting time of year. So I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and chat uh, about your your rise to where you are now in the profession and your passion for baseball. My pleasure. It's been it's been fun and, and I enjoy reading your your articles. Thank you. Thanks to Tom Tanus for joining us on Zoom for the Base Path podcast. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks to our producer, Steve Safran. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production.